Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Stephen Schwartzman has given £150 million to Oxford University, the largest contribution in its 800-year history. The Blackstone Group, head, has emerged as a major philanthropist with donations to the New York Public Library, MIT and Yale. He's also close to President Donald Trump and a little bit of a scholar when it comes to China. Well, I'm very pleased to be welcoming on Bloomberg Surveillance the Blackstone Group chief executive here in London. He is Stephen Schwartzman. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for coming in. Now, this is basically a, a faculty, a hub that brings the human humanities faculties to tackle ethical questions on artificial intelligence. But who's it up to to figure out how we regulate this so that we don't displace too many workers? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's more than that. Uh, for, first of all, it's bringing together the humanities faculties where Oxford is uh, ranked number one in the world. Uh, and they've never been together. It's all been separate buildings. And now it's going to be combined so they can get the advantage of cross-disciplinary kinds of stuff. Uh, We're going to have a major performing arts center, uh, and uh, that'll enable certain themes in the humanities to get played out. Uh, And then, uh, as I was learning about what Oxford was doing, I realized that their capabilities in humanities and philosophy in particular played right into uh, my concerns uh, about what happens when you introduce AI Uh, globally uh, and what happens to the displacement of workers, uh, all kinds of other, you know, uh, unexpected consequences. And and, and so using the Oxford uh, core of Western civilization Mm -hmm. to figure out what's human as you make decisions of what should be actually implemented is, is I think, the second piece uh, beyond just the technical but Steve Schwartzman, the, the politicians no longer listen to the academics. They no longer listen to, to the global elite. Why would they listen to anyone coming from Oxford? Well, I think the reason is that in this intersection between technology, about which governments know uh, pretty much next to nothing, uh, and, and, and the real world, where workers uh, can be adversely affected, which changes how society works and, and, and can change political things, that it's important to have somebody who's an arbitrator, if you will, mm-hmm. who can make recommendations to, to government, um, who, who have knowledge uh, and, and broach uh, the, the two areas, uh, that they're naturals to do this. Just leaving this to government, as we can see in the United States, uh, with just the simple issue of privacy is, is quite difficult. What are the questions that you would ask about AI right now? There's so many concerns about how certain countries, including China, for example, process the data and use the data to profile possibly a lot of their citizens. Well, that's China's right. Uh, and the West has a different set of core values. So, so one of the things, Francine, is we're going to be running into this issue of what really are our core values that we care about uh, in other, other societies uh, with different cultures. They'll do things differently. And we, we can't make them do what our values are and, and vice versa. 
Steve Schwartzman, uh, the library at Oxford, going back to 1602, has a very modern article out on its website analyzing tweets of the President of the United States. You are one of the great uh, advisors. You talk often to the President as well. You are the sole remaining free trader in his ear. Cone is out the door. Cudlow's done a great job, but Larry's been very ill. We hope he gets better and gets his strength back. You're it on free trade. How do you nudge the first mercantilist back towards Schwartzman free trade? Well, I, I, I think what's underlying that, Tom, uh, and by the way, I, I have no responsibility for any tweet uh, uh, by him or anyone else, uh, that uh, what, 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 what I think the president's looking for, and I'm not his spokesman on this, but what he's looking for is basically equivalence in terms of open markets and tariffs and, and, and trade. Uh, and, you know, there, there's not a real desire to entrench uh, the United States in some way. It should be uh, sort of fair competition. And, and all of these issues um, uh, that, are, that are being used as, as tactics, uh, uh, if you will, uh, are, are done to bring people to the table uh, so that you can get to equal. Uh, and, you know, so the best products win, the best price wins. If the U.S. loses, so they lose. If the U.S. wins, that's good. Uh, but, but I don't think there's another uh, agenda. Right. Uh, and, and, and so it's really just an evolution as developed market countries like China get to parity. Uh, will they? Okay. What time frame? Okay. Steve, Steve, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is really, really important. People don't know that you've also given not only to MIT, not only to others in America and now at Oxford, but you've donated substantial money towards the education of China with the Schwarzman College. You are a great listener of the leadership of China. What are you hearing from the leadership of China as they go to G20, as they deal with this president? What's the nuance you can give us right now? Well, this is a sort of a time where things are somewhat impenetrable. Um, the negotiations that had been going on uh, basically were uh, stopped uh, by, by the Chinese side. And, and, and each of the two countries, as, as you've seen, uh, and we've all seen, it seems to be uh, sort of bifurcated, going to their corners uh, and, and scaring the business community and uh, creating an adversarial uh, situation. And th that will continue uh, unless it's changed uh, by, uh, by the two presidents. So, so the meeting uh, in Japan is, is quite important uh, because they, they have the ability to reset uh, expectations, which now uh, were quite close, uh, but for some reason just, just sort of like disappeared. Uh, and if, if that can be put together in terms of a framework, th then the trade negotiators can go back to work and perhaps get something done. For our global audience, listeners and viewers, we're with Stephen Schwartzman, head of Blackstone, who has given £150 million to the University of Oxford. If this is a Schwartzman Center for Humanity at Oxford, what would be top of your curriculum? Job displacement or, or, or ethics? Well... There are a variety of things. You know, they have seven different areas, uh, ranging from English and history to to uh, theology. And the core 
uh, curriculum uh, of, of the liberal arts, uh, if you will. And that'll be taught. But in addition, uh, we're going to set up uh, a new, uh, or Oxford's going to set up uh, a new uh, AI ethics uh, uh, activity, which won't just use the humanities, which have a, are an unusual asset of Oxford, but will use the other major uh, parts of the university. And Oxford typically is ranked in the top five in the world, uh, one of the great uh, universities. And, and if you can bring all that to bear, uh, we'll have better outcomes. Do you worry about Brexit? You're, you're giving to a university exactly at a moment where we don't know if we can still attract talent to this country, whether more students will need visas. Well, the UK has been around for a long time. It depends how you measure, at least 1,200 years. Uh, and uh, things in the short term are not nearly as important as what we're trying to do uh, in the long term. And, and, you know, Brexit will take its way. Uh, that's up to the, the British uh, and the parliament, the government. It's so well covered. Uh, nobody knows quite how it's going to turn out. And from my perspective on this gift, uh, what's important is we set up the right structure for 100 years, 200 years. If you look at the program that Tom was mentioning about, which was the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua in China, has a trade war affected that? Well, it's amazing. Uh, you know, that program is sort of like the roads, except we take extraordinary people. Uh, and instead of going to Oxford, which is sort of an accident, um, uh, going to China uh, and teaching them about how China works. It started uh, with the endorsement of President Xi and President Obama. Uh, and thus far, uh, we have not been affected. Uh, education more generally in China has felt somewhat of a chill uh, as, as, as there are a variety of issues, whether they're trade or other types of things affecting China, uh, leading it to a, a, a more of a nationalistic uh, approach. Uh, I think uh, Schwarzman Scholars is viewed as a window uh, on, on, on the Western world and for the West uh, into China. And so I think it serves everyone's purpose uh, to have Schwarzman scholars um, thriving. Steve Schwarzman, I got to play off uh, a Wall Street Journal article today on scale and on the size and success of your Blackstone. Folks, to just give you perspective, in the last 10 years, Steve Schwarzman has outdone Goldman Sachs by 1,742 basis points. It's stunning 20-something percent per year versus a paltry 5% or whatever at Goldman uh, Sachs per year. It's a stunning, stunning outperformance. Are you getting too big? I mean, just simply, Steve, can you move the needle on deal transactions anymore with the scale that you've invented at Blackstone? Uh, the answer is sure, uh, or else we wouldn't do it. Uh, we're, we're not in the business of, of trying to hurt customers and our investors. We're trying to help them. And the way you get bigger in our world isn't by going into one strategy and keep making it so big that the thing can't perform anymore. Uh, the, the, the sort of approach that we've always had is to add new ideas which, which manifest themselves as different funds, and they should be right-sized, and we should catch an opportunity where there's really great returns, and we keep our more mature funds. They grow. The world grows. Uh, uh, but, but their job isn't to grow at an accelerated rate. 
we also don't need many deals in each of our funds. So in a normal year, typically, maybe we would do 10 transactions for a fund, um, just a right. little range on either side. But, for example, in private equity, we have 250 people all around the world. If we can't do 10 really interesting investments, we're really doing right. something wrong. Right. Steve, Buried in the Bod at Oxford is a book. It's an ancient, ancient Gothic book from about 1640. What the hell do we do with Deutsche Bank? It's a great book. Let me ask you the question right now. <laughs> what would you do with Deutsche Bank? Well, this one is, is sort of a tough one. I, I don't know that they were writing about it in 1640, but they, they certainly are in 2019. Uh, and the, the issue there, and, uh, you know, I don't work at Deutsche Bank, but, but you know, they, they, they basically have an investment bank and, and, and a consumer uh, uh, banking system. And the consumer bank isn't real profitable, and the investment bank uh, is, is, is suffering really from this end, endless questioning. It's very hard to keep uh, any service organization uh, together uh, as, as, as you asked that kind of question, Tom, which really reflects uh, questions that everybody are in, uh, asking, including, you know, sort of uh, uh, their shareholders and board people. But, it, but if you were in charge, either a Deutsche Bank or regulators, would you consolidate banks in Europe? It, it feels like it's overbanked. I, I, I would not be in charge. Uh, and there are certain things we can pick in life, and that's one pick that I wouldn't choose. Okay, w would you be Fed chair? And and do you believe that the world needs more stimulus? Is that right? That that we're in a dovish stance, or the world economy is is kind of at a turning point? Yes. Are we are we putting more trouble ahead by stimulating too much? Well, you know, in sort of three economic blocks. You've got China that's got its own issues, but still growing somewhere in the 5 to 6% area, despite uh, at least the current levels uh, of tariffs. You've got the U.S. that's slowed down a little bit. Um, you know, my own guess, nobody ever knows these things. They all keep being revised anyhow, even if they're reported, uh, is, is somewhere around 2 to 2.5. Two and, uh, and, and, and given the fact that Europe is running negative interest rates uh, and slower growth, the issue is really Europe. And, and the currencies start adjusting, you know, to these negative rates and, and U.S. slower growth. So it, it's sort of logical, you know, that U.S. interest rates might come down a little bit. Uh, you know, we're slowing, but we're we're yeah. not anywhere yeah. near approaching recession. Steve, I want to talk about 2020. We opened with a president, the montage in Orlando. Explain to disaffected Republicans why they need to step up and support President Trump for a second term. They can't term. They can't stand him. How do, how do you and the president get disaffected GOP over to support him once more? Well, I think... Uh you know, I'm, I'm not a political election expert, Tom. I'm, I'm like everybody else. I watch this stuff. Uh, and, and I think uh, what will drive the Republicans to come out is which Democrat uh, uh, is the nominee. Uh, to the extent that, that the Democratic nominees, you know, prove threatening uh, to, to middle class or other people, basically the last election, I guess, was, was won pretty much by suburban uh, women 
who went to the Republicans uh, in 2016. Uh, at the moment, that's not the case. Uh, it depends um, the issues that they're facing. Uh, and if, if they think that the Democrats have gone too far left, yeah. uh, uh, that, you know, they'll, they'll swing back. Uh, uh, and and we what? won't know who that person is. Uh, we don't know what they really believe until later. But what does the, the U.S. economy need right now? What kind of policies does the U.S. economy need from from the U.S. president? Well, I think um, the the only change in policies, we're already running really big deficits, so so there's not a lot of room uh, on the fiscal side. Uh, You could move interest rates down a little bit, but they're actually pretty low. Uh, And whether they get a little lower is great symbolically. Uh, It's it's not going to change what business uh, decides to do. It just gives you some uh, confidence. So I think the, the type of thing that would, would work is if some of the trade issues were, were resolved so people could, could have the confidence to know what's going to happen. That's what slows an economy. Steve Schwartzman, thank you so much. Uh, That is, of course, Steve Schwartzman, the chief executive of Blackstone, with that pledge of 150 million pounds to Oxford University, Tom. Dropping by the studio to catch up with us, Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives President and Founder. Good morning to you, Julia. Good morning. Where do we start? What can we expect from Chairman Powell a little bit later? Well, I think uh, there is uh, sort of a um, confusion amongst a lot of market participants. Certainly the survey we conduct showed that. A lot of different views. Nobody's, uh, most people don't expect him to come in and announce a rate cut, although that's possible. Uh, but they do expect him to open the door to rate cuts, which the market has already priced in. So the question is, we don't expect big changes in their outlook. We don't expect necessarily big changes in the dot plot. So how does he describe the situation? How does he open the door? Will it be enough for markets that are already well, well ahead of the Fed on that? Do you front? want to talk to us just to how difficult this is going to be for Chairman Powell? Yeah, in this it's, news it's conference a tricky. Today? It's a tricky press conference because you see you have global risks, both a global slowing in the economy and trade risks that are just impossible to calibrate and quantify. Uh, weighing heavily on their mind, even as the data flow in the U.S. is okay. And meanwhile, on the other hand, you've got inflation running low, inflation expectations running low. Uh, Would a rate cut do much to stimulate that? That's the debate that they're having So what's the strategy here as the chairman? Do you lean on the trailing data, say that's okay, and then lean on the uncertainty about the outlook? Is that the strategy for today? Yeah, I think there's there's two strategies. One is you say, look, there's there's risks to the outlook. Those risks are skewing to the downside. We are seeing data slow as expected, but coming with some downside risks. That's a reason to possibly take out some policy insurance. And then on the other hand, there's been a persistent issue, and that is inflation that is running too low, uncomfortably low uh, to their uh, objectives and inflation expectations that are showing, again, some signs of slippage. And that's a risk that they have flagged over and over again uh, as a, you know, more of a structural challenge to monetary policy. Yesterday was frightening to use a fancy financial word. <laughs> the president came to the rescue with a tweet. 
And John, yeah. would you agree with me that one single tweet lifted the markets? On trade? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was responsible for a big part of the move yesterday together with President Draghi. Or or all of it, whatever. That can flip right now. Mm -hmm. What are the ramifications for Chairman Powell and other institutional leaders if we take another run at the low rates Gary Schilling's talking about? Yeah, it's it's a sort of nightmare scenario to manage the, the monetary policy communication with this wild swings in trade policy signals. Um, What we have in hand is a trade war. We have tariffs that have been put in place that are having an effect. You are starting to see that again in the global economy. You're seeing it in business investment, which has been quite sluggish. Uh, So I think it's in addition to the noise, which is extremely volatile, and the Fed is in sort of a lose-lose situation no matter what they do, you do actually have trade restrictions that are starting to have an effect on the economy. So, uh, you know, I think the Fed just stays in its lane. It stays focused on that outlook. Uh, but it's it's a very difficult uh communication challenge for them. Uh, Julia, just to raise the question, are you comfortable ruling out a rate cut at today's meeting? I mean, I think it's a possibility that you they really? that, that they move ahead. Interesting. Um, I I don't, you know, I don't think it's it would be a terrible idea given that you, look, Chair Powell's going to walk in and have to defend a dot plot he doesn't necessarily believe, <laughs> uh, defend a baseline forecast that doesn't hold as much meaning in the current this environment. This is going well. <laughs> uh, and so the risks are that he's just goes in there and, and struggles. Uh, and so one. Possibility, if you think you're going to cut in July, is to go ahead and cut in June, and th- then the narrative is: see, we are flexible, well, Julie, we that, are responsive. That's the problem with the dots, and I think it's going to be a big, big problem later today. Yes, it's very difficult to forecast the cut without actually cutting interest exactly. rates. Exactly. So we're set to have, you think, a dot plot that shows the median dot with no rate hikes for the rest of the year. Right. That's still a spread between the market and the <laughs> Fed exactly. of three interest rate cuts. Yes. How difficult is it going to be? to manage market expectations at this meeting. It's very difficult because because the markets are, risk sentiment is sanguine in part because the Fed, the markets expect the Fed to cut. So then does the Fed not cut because markets are sanguine? That's what's a your real run, conundrum. What's your, I'll give you a conundrum. <laughs> what's your run rate on GDP? I mean, Bruce Kasman and JP Morgan, a major house, are at a stunning 1.5% 12 yeah. months forward. Are you there? Uh, yeah, we're below 2% 12 months forward, for sure. We do expect okay. that we're in a moderation. We're slowing to, at okay. a minimum, slowing to trend. And, and you're going to give me a bunch of terminal value, <laughs> R-star baloney. President Trump doesn't <laughs> care about that. Right. Every single politician, Republican or Democrat, says the economic growth you just described is unacceptable. Right. So they go, Fed, save us. Right. Is there any history out there that a Fed can spur economic growth? Uh, the Fed can spur economic growth. The question is, do they think that that is necessary when we are at a 3.6% unemployment rate? And the Fed will conclude, no, they don't need to inject a lot of stimulus uh, at this stage. They may need to. Uh, so if we hear some opening of the door, it would be a recalibration, taking out some insurance. It's not stimulating the economy with the objective of not seeing trend-like growth. The objective for the Fed is trend-like growth. There is a tension with politicians. And no matter what the Fed does, 
they will be the 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 lightning rod for the president. But you know, just to wrap things up, in the last ten years, we've had two growth scares. Tom, we had 2011, 2012. We had 2015, 2016. Yes. 2011, 2012, and 2015, 2016 felt a whole lot worse than this. Right. Didn't it? Well, they did in part because the markets didn't expect the Fed to move. And, and for example, 2015, markets were expecting the Fed to, to hike rates. And that contributed to a deterioration and a correction in sentiment. So this is the conundrum we're facing right now. We are in a global slowdown like 2015. Yep. The global data paint a very similar picture. We are starting to see energy prices slip to the lower end of the range. That could hurt yeah, yeah. the energy belt in the Interesting. U.S. Interesting. Um, so we are seeing that yeah. unfold very similarly, but the market's like, oh, we know the playbook. The Fed's going to respond and recalibrate you know, and keep us on track. We never know the playbook. Julia Carnado, Julia, thank you. So <laughs> Just really superb briefing. Krishna Mamani, OFI, CIO at, at Invesco. Great to see you, Krishna. Typically, we in, in, introduce Krishna and we just start the conversation on markets. And I want to do something different today. Please. Back in 2009, Krishna Mamani stood there when a lot of people were looking for the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates over the next 12 months and said, no, rates are going to stay low for a whole lot longer than you think. 15, 16, we had a big growth scare. There were some people that thought we were about to drop into a real recession. Krishnamani stood up and said, no, we're going to have the longest economic expansion on record. We're there, literally a month away. Krishna's standing up now and saying five more years, that this expansion can go for five more years. And Krishna, that's not just a headline to get attention. You truly believe this. And well, I want to understand it a little bit more today. Absolutely, I believe this. And, and thank you, John. Uh, you're easily bribable, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, Truth is But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, when you don't have inflation, the policymakers have a great deal of flexibility to engineer outcomes, and that is what they have been doing for a reasonably long uh, period of time. Remember one thing, the, the, the world faces lots of risks. So the best policy central banks in their totality can implement is to make sure that we don't get into a recession. That is their objective number one. So coming into 2019, our thesis was Fed tightened, tightened too much. It shouldn't have tightened when inflation was non-existent. At some point, they are going to pivot, and they're going to pivot hard. And our thesis was growth is moderating, but it is not moderating to a, a very low level, not to a catastrophic level. And in that context, we'll have significantly far more supportive policy than we have had in a long time. And that's how things are playing out. Right. So five more years is still our thesis. And I think there's good reason to think why things are going to be reasonably okay on, from, on the growth front uh, for quite some time. The heritage of Oppenheimer funds, going back to Oppenheimer Special Fund and Oppenheimer Target Fund a million years ago, truly a million, seems like a million years ago, Krishna, was to be opportunistic. What's the opportunistic now in big cap international stocks? I get really mixed messages. Well, so I, I, I think at the, uh, at the top level, what is opportunistic is the fact that technology is still going to do quite well. So I, I think the world is changing, and the world is changing in a meaningful way. How do you and get valuation on those big 
how do they catch up to America? Well, so I, I think the valuations overall, I, I, looking at valuations to drive your investment decisions has been a bad metric for quite some yes. time. And that is how it is going to remain. And, and the reason for that is very straightforward. In a growth short world, companies that can deliver growth right. will end up being valued significantly more than companies that deliver just okay growth. Where is the opportunity then in price to revenue right now, given how starved we are for revenue growth? Well, so I would say uh, the the regular technology companies, some of these who have been reclassified as communications companies, uh, there's tremendous opportunity there. I would say in in uh, in uh, in China, for example, companies like Alibaba, the valuations are high, but they're doing all sorts of things. Ten cents. So there are lots of companies on a global basis that you can find who are executing as well as it can be expected in the current environment despite tremendous amount of headwinds. When those headwinds fade slightly, I think the growth prospects of those companies increase meaningfully and investors are going to assign significant premium uh, over and above what they have already assigned to those companies. So right now we're pricing in significant easing. The global bond market has $12.5 trillion of negative yielding assets. The objective of QE should be to flush us out of core government bonds and to put us into riskier pockets. That's the objective of QE for so many people. That's the objective of looser monetary policy for so many central bankers. Will it be effective? Can that happen? Can you get the asset inflation in risk assets that these central banks pushed for at the turn of the decade and going after the financial crisis? Well, it has worked. And if you, or for that, all you have to do is look at where S&P 500 is. I understand where we are now, Krishna. I just mean going forward from here. Or are they pushing on a string now? Well, so they're, they're pushing on a string to some extent in terms of engineering significantly higher levels of growth and engineering significantly higher levels of inflation. From an asset price standpoint, I think they're not pushing on a string. We are close to all-time highs, and I think if the policy remains supportive and we have 2% growth, that right. will end up at asset prices being meaningfully higher. Your previous guest was saying, you know, we, are we, you know, you're making fun of people being defensive. We are not defensive. Our outlook for S&P 500 by year end is probably close to 3,100. Okay. I'm behind. From what I can tell from reports, most of the known world is behind. How do they catch up with your optimism? Do they slide into the market or do they acquire shares today with optimism? Well, I, I think they are probably going to be pushed into uh, acquiring a position as opposed to going in. How are you pushed into it? How uh, do I push to buy Amazon? You are pushed into it by markets going up and you steadily following because you are afraid of falling behind. And that has been happening all year. Is that moved year. out there right now? All year, we're up 16%. I mean, 26,465 in the Dow everyone feels behind don't they well they they do but but, but let's kind of take a step back and look at uh, uh, not just 2019 returns but longer term returns and what we see is in a year s&p really hasn't done much so i think there's tremendous yeah there's this tremendous room for S&P 500 or U.S. stocks to do reasonably well. And uh, I, I think if, the, if growth materializes yeah. at the level that we expect in the second half, things will be significantly better than where they are today. Christian Mamani with Thrillies with us with Oppenheimer Funds. We should say that Oppenheimer Funds has, has been a wonderful supporter of this show, including our visits down there. As has Krishna. Yeah. Oh. 
just a minor correction here. Oppenheimer Funds doesn't exist anymore. We got acquired by Invesco. So we are Invesco today. Excuse me, I didn't know that that transaction finally had closed. Yes, OFI. May 24th. We did introduce him, Thomas, OFI CIO at Invesco. Did we? We did, yeah. What's the official name that you're using? Invesco Oppenheimer? No, it's Invesco. Should we do this in the commercial break? No, I, I, I think <laughs> people do, are We can do it all live on air if you want. <laughs> no, it's great. It's okay with Invesco. Excuse me. Let's bring in Vince Reinhardt of Mellon right now. Wonderful to have Vince Reinhardt with us. Vincent Reinhardt, of course, head of economic research for Alan Greenspan at the Fed uh, for decades and really codified the quality of research in the modern Fed. If you were at the Fed today, Vincent Research, which Vincent Reinhardt, which well, research... It's a great nickname, that is. Vincent Research, Vincent research it works. I like that. Vincent Research, <laughs> if you were at the Fed today and not at Mellon, which research piece would you reach for to advise Chairman Powell what to do? Is it Orphanides? Is it others? Which is the research piece that matters? Uh, actually, my initials are VRR, so they do work. <laughs> I actually would be Glenn Rudabush, uh, who oh, in the 90s wrote about uh, the predictability of the federal funds rate. If you think about it, the overnight rate doesn't really matter for long-term rates. It's just one day out of 10 years. The Fed, any central bank, projects an influence on longer-term rates because they affect the entire path for interest rates. That's why most of your yeah. focus right now is about communication. What do they say? How, what, how do they do right. the patient? How far out the yield curve do they influence the market? Way further than makes it much sense, actually. I don't understand why 10-year yields uh, move so much and why far-ahead forwards move so much. And part of it is... Central banks just have a hard time anchoring uh, expectations. But if you want to look about how far a central bank can influence things, how about uh, President Drahi? He's got a negative uh, uh, tenure rate in, in, in many of his jurisdictions. Uh, same, same, same is true for the near zero policy rate, uh, tenure rate in Japan. Central banking does matter. Uh, it matters for the yeah. longer term in terms of how they anchor inflation expectations. Let's come back. Vince Reiner with us with Mellon. We're thrilled to have Vincent Reiner uh, with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.